There is an attitude that crops up with some frequency among Christians. This attitude was made popular by a Christian radio personality earlier this century. I'm not going to tell you his name, but perhaps you've heard the sentiment. It's called the sinking ship mentality. The sinking ship mentality. And this attitude, this mentality, takes aim at efforts to make the world better in Jesus' name. Can we rescue people out of poverty? Can we improve the lives of orphans? Can we rescue people from trafficking situations? Can we build societal structures that honor the Lord Jesus Christ who sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father? The sinking ship mentality responds, no, we can't. All of our energy spent in those things is merely polishing the brass on a sinking ship. The mentality assumes that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do about it. Write it off. It's over. It's, it's as good as done for. Oftentimes, salvation is portrayed as an escape from this world to a spiritual reality somewhere out yonder. The sinking ship mentality. Now, the problem arises when we read passages in Scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, where Paul says, after spending this immense amount of energy describing the return of Jesus and how spectacular and glory, angels and trumpets and transformations and resurrections and all these things, and then he gets almost anticlimactic, hey, therefore, stand firm. Be immovable. Keep working. Don't sit back. Don't become an observer. Don't just hang out. The work that you do in the Lord is not in vain. It's not useless. It's not futile. Keep going. Paul does not exhibit the sinking ship mentality. You never catch him saying things like, hey, let's just... We're just polishing the brass on a sinking ship, so let's not worry about it and go just pray or something until Jesus comes back. He doesn't work that way. And so then we have to ask the question, well, Paul, it's almost like you've switched gears on us. You've been, you spent 57 verses talking about the resurrection. Now we get to verse 58, big chapter, long, longest discussion of the resurrection, or really of anything, sustained argument in Paul's letters. 57 verses on the resurrection, one verse on keep up the good work. <laughs> Be steadfast. Don't stop. Don't stop working. So what's the connection? What does the resurrection have to do with the mundane daily tasks that we do in Jesus? What's the connection, Paul? And for Paul... The answer is pretty straightforward, and we're going to explore it. The resurrection connects the dots. If Jesus is going to come back and raise the dead, bodies are going to come out of graves, and the whole creation is going to be made new. I mean, that's what he's talking about. 
going to have a body later. What you do with your body now matters. It's not going to be cast off. It's not just going to disintegrate forever and be done with and over and gone. That's the opposite of what he says here, isn't it? As if your body's going to be raised now, what you do with it now, if your body's going to be raised later, what you do with it now matters. For Paul, the bottom line, if resurrection is reality, then our labor will last. The work continues. Somehow, Jesus is going to take all of the things that we do in His name and in His power and the power of the Spirit and bring them forward into new creation and make them fruitful there. Now that's mysterious. I'm not really sure how it plays out, but I want to trust the Apostle when he says, the work that you do now is not a waste. The work that you do now is not a waste. We're going to come back to the work in a few minutes. We're going to dig into the first half of the bottom line and talk about the reality of resurrection a little bit more. So Paul sets this up. And he wants the Corinthians, he wants us to understand that resurrection, hope for resurrection, is a, is, it defines reality. I mean, this for Paul, this is real. When you run up against the resurrected Jesus, you are running up against reality. Everything else is a shadow. Jesus is more human than anyone. The God-man is more real, more firm, more substantial. Jesus is reality. And we want to be joined to Him so we can participate in that reality. And resurrection for us will be a new experience of reality. This is real. This is real stuff. So he says, look, think about it this way. And he runs this series of contrasts, doesn't he, in verse 42. What is sown, the body that goes into the ground. We've been to funerals. We've all been to funerals. We've lost people we love. We've wept over bodies going into the ground. And Paul says, the one that goes in the ground is perishable. And we say, yes, we know. <laughs> we know what it means to be bound to mortality. The body that goes in the ground, verse 42, what is sown is perishable. What is raised, imperishable. It can't die. The one that is sown is sown in dishonor. It's going to go down there and be eaten by worms. Not a very honorable picture. The one that gets raised, raised in glory. And then we get to a, a verse that has caused more people more problems. I mean, honestly, friends, it's probably one of the hardest verses in Paul. There's some hard ones out there. 1 Corinthians 15.44 is one of the hardest passages in the whole Pauline body of letters to translate from Greek to English. You know, Paul wrote in Greek, and our testaments are English translations of his ancient Greek. We don't get into the Greek stuff a lot, do we? But this time, we're, it's almost unavoidable. So just hold on to your seats. Get a little crazy. He says in verse 44, we've already looked at perishable, imperishable. That's one contrast. Dishonor, glory. That's another contrast. Then he says, and this is the New Revised Standard Translation, it is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. And we live in a world where we automatically think physical is real and spiritual is kind of translucent. You know, like Wile E. Coyote or something after the anvil gets dropped on his head. If you're too young to know what that means, just go Google it uh, <laughs> later. Um, yeah, but you know the Looney Tunes, right? If you're you know, my age or older, you'll remember this. They don't have Looney Tunes anymore. But the coyote, right? some of you heard this example before, 
would, you know, try to blow up uh, the Roadrunner, right? And it always backfired. He'd have his dynamite with Acme written on the side or something like that, or he'd drop an anvil off a cliff, and somehow something, the plan would not go as it should have. It would backfire, and who ends up dead? The coyote, right? And as soon as the anvil lands on his head or the dynamite goes off, all of a sudden he gets kind of translucent. You can see the cliffs behind him as he flutters off into heaven with his harp, his halo, and his wings. That's what a spiritual body is, right? That's what we think anyway. That's not what Paul means. That's not what Paul means. We're going to have to dig in a little bit. If you're into the language stuff, this one's for you. If not, <laughs> it's for you too. Here's what happens. The Greek word for body is soma. That's where we get words like somatic, things like that. The Greek word for body is soma. It means this stuff. You can grab it, you can shake hands, you can pinch, it gets fat, it gets sick, it breaks, it gets cut, it bleeds. Soma is body. That's what he's talking about. Then he introduces some other words. One is the word that often gets translated into soul. Suke. It's a body with a soul or something like that. That's what's translated here is natural body. Natural body, body with a soul. Body that's alive. Something like that. Uh, a lot of times, the word is translated soul and it just means person. And then he contrasts that with a, with a word that means is often translated spirit. And that's where we get spiritual body. So you've got the soma with a suke, the body with a soul, in contrast to the body with a spirit. The word is pneuma. It's where we get words like pneumatic. Maybe you've got a pneumatic drill. If I, know what I, if, if I, I think I know what that is, it uses air, kind of shut, is that right? That air, spirit, that's kind of the Greek, the Greek word that's the idea there. Soulish body, spiritual body. Body empowered by a soul, body empowered by the Holy Spirit. But what's the consistent thing? The body. Both of these are soma. Both of them are somatic. The question isn't whether or not we're dealing with a physical body. The question is whether or not it's a perishable body or an imperishable body, a corruptible body or an incorruptible body, a mortal body or an immortal body. And for Paul, bodies that we have, you know, this kind of one that gets sick and, and, and dies is a body fit for this world, for this age, for this stage in God's creative purposes. And it's perishable and it's mortal and it's corruptible. He calls that a soma Psychicon, a, a soulish body. A, this, this one. <laughs> if you got one, let's. Yeah, here it is, right? We got them, right? We know what they're like. Hit my thumb with a hammer, it hurts, right? In contrast to, and I apologize, but it's a soma pneumaticon, a body empowered by the Spirit of God. The issue isn't whether it's a body. The question is, what empowers the body? It's kind of like the difference between a gas-powered ship and a nuclear-powered ship. 
kind of a different piece of machinery. Both of them are shipped. They both have holes, don't they? Two very different powers at work inside those. I don't even know if they make gas-powered ships. Somebody's probably going to come up to me later and say, what are you talking about? But you get the idea. The question isn't the body. The question is what empowers it. And the present body is enlivened or empowered in a way that's fit for this world. Paul says the next one, the immortal and imperishable soma, will be empowered by none other than the Spirit of God. Just like Jesus. It's the Spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead that we believe in. That's how God makes Himself. The Spirit of God raises Jesus. His power raises Him. And the power of God will raise us by His Spirit. Still have bodies. That's the point of continuity we've been talking about. The plant illustration, haven't we? Apple seeds produce apple trees. Body now, body later. But there's also discontinuity. The seed is not the tree. Soulish body, living body, body fit for this age, spiritual body, more real body, imperishable body, body fit for the age to come. One person already has a body like that. You know who it is? It's not a trick question. It's Jesus. <laughs> right? When Jesus came out of the tomb, He came out of the tomb with what Paul calls a spiritual body. Right? And what did He want to do after He came out of the tomb? Eat breakfast. That's what Luke says. He goes to the disciples. They think He's a ghost. They think He's a wily e. Coyote kind of guy. Right? They're like, is it really Him? Could it be? Is it a ghost? They know what ghosts are. They've not yet run into a resurrected person yet. And so he comes up to them at the end of Luke's Gospel. You can go home and read it this afternoon. It says, look, ghosts don't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. What's for breakfast? And they fix some fish. I mean, that's, that's what it says. And then the resurrected spiritual body of Jesus has some broiled fish for breakfast. Maybe he gives those guys a hug. Spiritual body doesn't mean less real, it means more real. Imagine what this body would be like if the Spirit of God actually got a hold of it. (laughs) Brought it to life in every new way. That's what Paul has in mind when he talks about the difference between the present and the future. Very hard to render that into English, and that's why our translations struggle with it. Maybe we want to get together later and just kind of list out all the different ways we could do it. The point for Paul is that the first one is a body fit for the present world. The one that's coming is a body fit for the future. That's his point. And he uses the Adam, this, this contrast between Adam and Jesus to further illumine. He says, Adam, man of dust. And dust is a reminder of what? From dust you came into dust you shall return. That's an image of death, isn't he? And we've borne the image of the man of dust. That's another way of saying we're mortal. We're corruptible. We're dying. We're sinners. But he says, if you belong to Jesus, you've borne the image of the man of dust. You've had Adam as your representative. You've followed in his footsteps. You've carried his identity. But if you belong to Jesus, you get brought into a new identity in Christ 
who sits in the heavenlies, who reigns at the right hand of God the Father, who, and remember, it's a body that sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Right now in heaven, a human body is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And that body is the prototype for the one you'll get when he comes back. We've borne the image of the man of dust, Paul says. We're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. But that doesn't mean losing the body. It means getting a lot better one. Glorious, immortal, incorruptible. For Paul, that's reality. That dynamic defines all reality for him. I mean, why do we think he spends so much time? 58 verses is pretty long on one topic for Paul. He gets around. He jumps from one thing to another. 58 verses is all. This is reality for him. This is, the main, this is the most important thing. Remember, he told him already, if you deny this, just stay home and get in bed because your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You've denied the faith. <laughs> There's no room for that for him. This is reality. This is essential. This is important. And it's a mystery. This is striking to me. This passage that I've read at almost every funeral I've ever preached. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-57. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now you may say, as soon as you hear that, I thought you just said this is all about bodies, and he just said flesh and blood can't. Flesh and blood for Paul is an idiom for corruptibility. Right? Jesus has flesh and bones, and he has already inaugurated the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood for Paul is just, you know, it's like when he talks about the works of the flesh. He's not talking about this stuff, he's talking about bondage to sin. He's talking bodies in bondage to sin can't inherit the kingdom of God. Bondies in bondage to corruption and mortality can't inherit the kingdom of God. Bodies set free from that will. So when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that is uh, an idiom for mortality, the present life. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, listen, I will tell you a mystery. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who will be dead when Jesus comes back and those who will be alive when Jesus comes back. He says we're not all going to die. Some of us are going to hear the trumpet. And the Lord is going to come. He's going to arrive. And in this moment, quicker than you can blink your eyes, the dead in Christ will be raised and those of us who are alive will be transformed. All right, so here I am. Say Jesus comes back in a few minutes. Then those who will be we're here, we're right here, those who belong to Him, His people, we don't sort of, like, he comes back and we die and get raised. That's not what happens. You just get transformed in the blink of an eye, twinkling of an eye. All of a sudden, the drainage goes away and the sinuses are perfect. <laughs> Amen for that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, broken arms are healed. <laughs> Fragile bodies are made glorious. And the dead in Christ rise. People who have been cremated are reconstituted. Those who have been those who just decayed are enlivened. That's what he means. He's, and he's, this is mysterious. It's amazing to me. He can spend 
this much time on something that's ultimately a mystery. <laughs> he's, a pretty, he's a typical preacher, right? Nobody has a clue what he's talking about, and he's going to talk about it forever. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I will tell you a mystery. This is, and mystery in the New Testament is not like a mystery novel kind of mystery. It's something that's going to be revealed. Because when Jesus comes back, this is, we're not sure how it's going to work out, but he's going to reveal this new experience of life. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed. This is the truth. This is reality for all the people of God. Nothing else. This is reality. Resurrection is reality for the people of God. What's true for Jesus is going to be true for everyone who belongs to Him. This perishable body must put on imperishability, verse 53. This dying mortal body must put on immortality. So there's kind of two, two different pieces of that where He articulates it. He doesn't say how it happens, but He wants you to understand the character of the resurrected body. This, the new NRSV renders the word Im, uh, imperishable. Some of you may have a translation that says corruption and incorruptible. And that's probably a better translation. This is about being bound to corrupt sin. Bodies that are tempted and bodies that fall and bodies that are able to dishonor God. Bound to corruption and all the pain and all the hurt are going to be raised incorruptible. All the mortality is going to be raised in, in, into immortality. And then Paul says, the saying that is written will be fulfilled. It's not fulfilled yet, is it? <laughs> we know what it feels like to be Slaves to corruptibility and slaves to death, to mortality. But Paul says, when Jesus comes back, then the saying will be fulfilled. Not yet, then. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's reality. That's reality. Now for Paul... He draws a straight line. 57 verses talking about the reality of resurrection. One verse, don't stop working. If resurrection is reality, our labor will last. Our work is eternal. It's not useless. It's not futile. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling. Don't be mediocre. Excel in the work of the Lord. Because the work you do, you know that in the Lord, your labor is not a waste of time. You're not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Jesus expects you to get to work. Because He's at work making all things new. He's at work setting people free. He's at work bringing people into a new experience of human flourishing in relationship with their Father, brought into that relationship through His blood, enabled by and empowered by His Holy Spirit. Jesus is at work making new creation. And that means we are not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. It's not a waste of time to be at work in ministry with the poor it's not a waste of time to travel across borders to care for people who are hurting. Make sure they know Jesus loves them and make sure you're, they know that you're there because of that. 
that work somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, the work that you do across the street, across state lines, at the Friendship Mission, at UMCOR, in Guatemala, in your office place, in your home, the work that you do, Jesus, the Lord of all, is going to bring it forward into the new creation. And it will there bear fruit like you've never imagined. The mundane, daily, boring, annoying, frustrating task that we do day in and day out, that we, and, we, and we feel that bondage to mortality, and we feel this, this corruptibility, and it's painful, and it hurts. Jesus, the resurrected one, is going to take all of that done in His name and in the power of His Spirit, and He's going to pull it forward into the new creation. He's going to make it new, and your work will bear fruit forever. If resurrection is reality, our labor will last. Now what's funny about Paul, he has an agenda. If your Bible's like mine, there's a paragraph break. Well, there's a chapter break, isn't there? Now, you need to know, Paul did not write chapters into his letters. That came along later, somebody who said it would be really helpful to keep up with things if we had chapters and verses. So they divided it all up. Sometimes they did it in helpful ways. Other times they did it in less than helpful ways. So it's kind of helpful sometimes to just kind of pretend the chapters aren't there. Kind of helpful to just pretend the chapters aren't there and just keep reading. So if we were going to pretend that chapter 16 isn't, the 16 isn't there, we just kind of keep reading. Some of you already have and you're like, aha. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The next thing he says, now concerning the collection. I told you Paul was a preacher. <laughs> He's getting ready to take an offering. He's like, God raised Jesus from the dead. God is, God is going to raise you from the dead. Keep up the good work. Now pass the basket. <laughs> the collection for the saints in Jerusalem is who he's, who, he's, who, who he's taking the offering for. And we've talked about this in different contexts, different places, different passages. Paul has been traveling around the Mediterranean taking up an offering from non-Jewish Christians, Gentiles, and he's planning to take it back to Jerusalem, right? Because Jewish people and non-Jewish people did not get along in the ancient world. This was, I mean, it was not a, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of name calling, and a lot of things like that. And Paul says, look, if the church is going to succeed, if we're going to be fruitful, we've got to build some inter-ethnic unity. And so I'm going to go to the nations. I'm going to take up an offering. I'm going to take it back to the church in Jerusalem where they are suffering and they are struggling and we're going to care for them. right? Because for Paul, he's not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. The work he does will last. So he wants the nations to care for the poor, persecuted believers in Jerusalem. The work that you do is not in vain. So on the first day of the week, set aside some money. And I'm going to come get it. I'm going to take it to the church in Jerusalem. we got a mission to, to accomplish. He wants them to be generous. He wants them to embody the generous character of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Who, though he was rich, Paul says elsewhere, became poor for our sake. What else do we stand firm in? It's easy to get discouraged in our role as parents. If you're grandparents now, maybe you can think back on this. Diapers. Can somebody fix me one of these? I'm hungry. Are we there yet? <laughs> All the stuff. 
I lost my shoes, my socks don't match. It's mundane and it gets old, doesn't it? You can say amen, that's okay. It, it gets old. Paul wants us to remember that those daily, mundane, normal, sometimes frustrating realities are bearing fruit for eternity. Those little people that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to us are disciples. Jesus wants them. And he's called upon, he's entrusted them to us to bring them to him. To make our home a place where disciples are made. To teach our kids to love him, to trust him, to honor him with their whole lives. And it can be grueling at times. Resurrection is reality, our labor will last. And the tying shoes and Picking up toys and reading the Bible with our kids and talking about Jesus and all just all the things in there. The Lord Jesus will use that now and later. He'll bring it forward. Our professional lives. We go to work. Very easy to go clock in and forget about Jesus. I've got tasks, I've got things, I've got responsibilities, I've got projects that have to get done. When I was a child, uh, my dad worked uh, for a restaurant. And one day the truck rolled in. If you've ever worked in you know, retail, trucks come in and they have to be unloaded. And so uh, the guys in the restaurant go out to unload the truck. It's a hot day. There's a lot of swearing and other kinds of things are being said. They get the job done. The driver comes up to my dad and he says, hey, you must be a Christian. My dad says, how'd you know? The guy says, because all these other guys are doing nothing but complaining, swearing, fussing. And you just did your work quietly with a good attitude. And that day, my dad had an opportunity to commend the gospel by living in a way that corresponds to the gospel. And that labor, on the day when my dad gets raised from the dead, is going to be brought forward into the new creation. And it's going to have fruit that go beyond our imagination. So when you find yourself at your desk or on the truck, or on the job site, or where, whatever work looks like for you. Remember, <laughs> they didn't get the job done in time. Am I working in the Lord? My boss is not treating me fairly. Am I doing my labor in the Lord? How do I react? How do I respond? What does my character look like in those places when the pressure's on in my professional life? What does my character look like? Does it look like does it look like a body empowered by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> or not? All the way around, friends. Wherever life takes us, whatever our circumstances are, the work that you do in the Lord is not wasted. 
Resurrection is the reality. That means our labor will last. Work we do in our bodies now will be brought forward into the new creation and celebrated by resurrected bodies. We've spent five or so weeks digging deeply into these texts because we're running into reality. We are running into the resurrected Lord. And we're beginning to get a vision for what He wants to do to our bodies and through our bodies. Resurrection is reality. Our labor will last.